Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Antonio Lieto, who is Assistant Professor of Computer Science at the University of Turin. His research focuses on artificial intelligence, human-machine interaction, and computational cognitive science. Welcome, Antonio. So, hi, Gil. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So, we want to talk about your book that, that just came out um, with a fascinating title, Cognitive Design for Artificial Mind. Uh, and, and before we get into the details of this, I have sort of a philosophical question for you. Um, I was wondering about this for a while. Uh, so as humans, we have made a lot of tools. Uh, maybe half a million years ago, we have rocks and sticks. Um, maybe more recently, we had the, we have the internal combustion engine. So we have made a lot of tools, including computers. Why do we, why do we try to assign intelligence to computers. Um, we don't seem to do that to any other machine or tools that we have uh, we have created so far. Why are computers so different? Uh, well, yeah, this is a these are deep philosophical questions, but uh, <laughs> philosophical question. Uh, I'm not sure I have a, 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 an answer, but uh, uh, the reason, the, the main reason, uh, in my in my opinion, is that uh, with computers you do. Uh, uh, a lot of more things with respect to the tools that we have uh, uh, built so far along our uh, history. So, in particular, I mean, um, the tools that you were uh, mentioning are able to do specific tasks, but with, computer, with computers, I mean, we can use, uh, uh, let's say, a computer for doing a, lot, a bunch of different things, for going into the moon or, or Mars, or for, uh, I don't know, doing uh, uh, simple arithmetic or algebraic uh, calculations, or for, I mean, really a lot of different things. And uh, this is, uh, let's say, um, uh, a kind of common element that we have with uh, 
our ability, not just, uh, let's say, um, not, not just our as humans, but let's say, with uh, the, the ability that all the, the natural, uh, let's say, systems uh, have. So, uh, in, in, other, in other words, the idea is that we are able to use within uh, this kind of, uh, let's say, uh, compressed and constrained anatomical uh, engine, a lot of different things. And in a similar way, we want to use computers, this kind uh, of machines, uh, in, a, uh, in a sort of general purpose way, in a, in a, uh, in a similar way as we humans are able to, uh, to do, and, or, or uh, as other animals are able to, uh, to do. Yeah. I mean, I am not sure if this is a satisfactory uh, answer. For, uh, no, no, that, that for text, so, so in some sense, what you're saying is that the general purpose nature of the computer, that we can do a lot of different things with it, and we can do a lot of, th lot of different things with our brain too. And so, so the general purpose nature of the machine that allowed us to really think about usefulness of computers very differently from other tools that we have made. Uh, and so I want, to, I want to go into the book. Um, so you start with sort of the history. Um, uh, you know, you start off by saying cognitive science was original artificial intelligence. Um, computers uh, have been with us for, for more, than, more than 100 years now in one form or the other. Um, but cognitive science uh, is somewhat of a recent, uh, recent uh, discipline, isn't it? Uh, yeah, okay, so cognitive science is an umbrella term. It is an umbrella term that covers a lot of different uh, disciplines like artificial intelligence, linguistic, psychology, anthropology, philosophy, and neuroscience. This is the so-called cognitive hexagon, okay, because this is the idea. And there are, of course, different connections between the different, the different disciplines that I have mentioned so far. But uh, let's say what is nowadays called uh, cognitive science, that is a, a term pretty new, as we were mentioning, was already, uh, let's say, um, in Nuce, in the, in the cybernetic tradition. So cognitive science is the new, let's say, version of uh, cybernetics, which on the other end uh, was already, let's say, uh, uh, on the market, let's say, uh, um, since the... the, the, the late 40s of the last uh, century due to the work of Norbert Wiener. And in some sense, cybernetics was, uh, let's say, the, um, the, the, the common ancestors of both, uh, let's say, artificial intelligence uh, and of both, let's say, the symbolic tradition in artificial intelligence and also of the uh, sub-symbolic or connectionist traditions in artificial intelligence, but all the, me the methodological paradigm in uh, today computational cognitive science is a derivation of uh, um, the methodological apparatus coming from uh, um, uh, cybernetics, with some adjustments and deviations, of course, because there were some decades of studies and of results in the middle, but this is, uh, let's say, the overall framework of cognitive science. And in the beginning of the book, I tried to uh, make it uh, uh, clear how, let's say, the purpose 
of, uh, let's say, of the purpose of the original artificial intelligence, the original field of artificial intelligence was very much aligned with one of, let's say, Conti science, which is understanding how the mind, the brain, and intelligence, let's say, works in both, let's say, um, biological systems and non-biological, non-biological uh, ones, so including machines, okay? And, uh, um, but, let's say, from my historical perspective, uh, starting from the late 80s of the last century, there was a sort of, uh, let's say, uh, distinction of the research agenda of these two sciences, sciences of the artificial. This is a term that was coined by Herbert Simon, which was one of the really pioneers of, um, uh, in, the, in the field of both, uh, let's say, artificial intelligence and cognitive uh, psychology, and try to, uh, let's say, uh, uh, try to build, uh, together with his colleague Alan Newell, the first AI system by taking inspiration from how, from the kind of heuristics that uh, we use in order to solve different kinds, different classes of uh, problems. So, at the beginning, there was this uh, uh, very strong alignment. Then uh, there are uh, several reasons for uh, um, that started to yeah. So you see, right. you talk about um, sort of the heuristics and AI errors, um, and so even going back in time uh, from the Dartmouth. Uh, meeting that I believe was in the 1960s, right? Mid 1960s. Uh, uh, yeah, it was 56. Yeah, 1956. Yeah. 1956. Um, there was a time uh, when we used to call it expert systems, um, really very much heuristics-driven um, aspects of using computers to make decisions. Uh, this brings some memory for me. Um, Antonio, my thesis in the mid 80s was uh, a heuristics driven expert systems for expert system for education, where we were trying to figure out uh, graduate students, how do we create a heuristic of their cognitive bias by letting them play in a large design field uh, and uh, let them make, uh, make uh, mistakes. And from that mistakes, we could garner uh, what cognitive biases they may have. And so heuristics driven expert systems have been there for a long time. And as, as you said, late 80s, there's a bit of a divergence uh, in terms of artificial intelligence, more, um, more empirically driven. Uh, and is this where we make the distinction between a sort of the functional and structural uh, methodologies or is the sort of the connect, connectionism and, uh, and the opposite of that? Uh, no, I think that uh, the, the distinction between the structural and uh, um, functional models that I draw at the beginning of the book uh, starts already uh, before, let's say, these, uh, 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 before the 80s of, of the last uh, century, so before this divergence. Uh, and uh, in particular, let's say, in a nutshell, this distinction, as I try to make it clear in, in the book, is between, uh, let's say, artificial models, artificial systems that have an explanatory role with respect to a natural system that is able to, let's say, uh, uh, do the same class of task, 
okay? Uh, and uh, this is the case of functionalist uh, system. In general, in functional system, functionalist artificial system, uh, there is only a surface uh, resemblance of how the system is built and how the algorithms within the system are built with respect to the heuristics that humans or other animals use to solve the same kind of uh, problems that also the system wants to use. And on the other end, there are the structural systems, uh, structuralist systems that uh, have uh, a more constrained resemblance with respect to the natural system uh, that uh, they want to, uh, let's say, somehow, uh, somehow uh, replicate, okay? Uh, in which they want to, let's say, solve the same class of problems that the natural system is able to, to solve. So, structural systems have an explanatory role back with respect to the natural system that are taken as a source of inspiration. Why? Because they are explicitly designed by taking into account, let's say, different types of constraints that allows you to that allow, uh, allows you to uh, interpret the, the the output that is generated by the system by the system on the other end in functional the in functional systems you only have uh, let's say uh, this system just share the same input output specification with respect to the natural system that is able to make the same kind of uh, or, or to deal with the same kind of problems but the way in which the output of these systems is generated has nothing to do with respect to let's say, the mechanism that are used by the corresponding natural system that is also able to, let's say, obtain from an observer perspective, from an external perspective, the same kind of um, behavior. So this is the main distinction, and it was already uh, known in the field of, uh, let's say, computational uh, cognitive science and cognitive, uh, uh, cognitive uh, modeling. Yeah, so yeah. let me see if I understand this, uh, Antonio. So would it be correct in saying a functional system is sort of an engineering design? So we, we have an objective. Uh, we can make that objective through an engineering design uh, like an aircraft flying, but it has nothing to do with, let's say, a biological system like a bird, for example. Uh, whereas a structural uh, methodology and a structural system would be would be trying to replicate in some way what a biological system does, right? Uh, and so it's not just the output; it's also the process of reaching the output. Yeah, uh, that's right. But I mean, I would say that both this, cla this class of artificial system are, uh, let's say, the result of an engineering solution. Okay, so they are both the result of an, uh, an engineering solution. But as you were mentioning, on uh, one end, you do not take into account the way in which, let's say, a natural system is able to solve the same class of problem. And on the other end, you, uh, let's say, uh, take care also of, of the processes that lead to uh, to a certain uh, kind of uh, uh, to a certain kind of uh, output. And in general, I would say one of the main elements of divergence um, of uh, artificial intelligence of the artificial intelligence field in the in the in the last decades is uh, their the, the focus on uh, the the functional side. Okay, so. Uh, mm, Starting from the 80s, as I was mentioning, there was 
uh, the EA field started to focus on very narrow application, uh, also with, with the scope of commercializing some, some of these applications. I mean, we, on our phone, we have nowadays uh, a lot of, let's uh, say, um, narrow AI systems that are able to do a, a plethora of different, uh, different things, right? Uh, but, I mean, on one end, this kind of DVD-Tipper approach led to, this, um, to the emergence of this kind of, uh, uh, let's say, um, narrow and uh, hyper-specialized uh, uh, system. On the other end, uh, there was, uh, uh, let's say, uh, we lost somehow the, the big picture uh, about studying and uh, understanding what do we, I mean, what do we mean with the with the uh, um, artificial intelligence, and uh, in particular, also from a practical perspective, how can we actually integrate uh, in an autonomous agent all these different kinds of AI which are specialized in very narrow uh, domains? I think this is the, the one of the key uh, points of, of the book. So if we want to integrate all these different types of um, hyper-specialized AI, which work very well in the domains, we need to uh, somehow uh, study a little bit uh, the uh, architectural commitments that biological systems that also show these general purpose capability uh, have and have to face in order to integrate all these different uh, uh, um, uh, faculties. This is, so, this is a point, so this is an important point, but yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, so, so two thoughts come to mind, uh, Antonio. So going back to, back to our original discussion, um, we use computers, we look at computers as sort of a general purpose system. So in the functional design world, when we create this hyper-specialized products, they're not general purpose machines anymore. They are actually very much like a tool, uh, like an internal combustion engine. Um, and so in some sense, I think you talk about this, you know, IBM Watson, Google's AlphaGo, these are all functional systems, highly super specialized functional systems uh, are really tools that does one thing. Um, so, we can't really categorize them as artificially in the in the world of artificial intelligence the way that people think about AI. Can we? Uh, okay, I, I agree. I agree with you. But, I mean, uh, I have nothing against these systems, which are let's say uh, the state of the art of engineering that that uh, we have. So they are great, great tools, great, uh, great AI systems. I would say that they are. A specialized AI system. They are not really able to, uh, let's say, generalize the kind of capability that uh, they have achieved in uh, specific uh, uh, fields in order to cover the, 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 the wide range of, uh, let's say, capabilities that we have in, uh, uh, in humans. And one of the reasons uh, of this, um, uh, let's say, lack of uh, capability of transfer uh, or, or, or let's say of, of transferring what they are able to do in one field of uh, in, in another field is due to the fact that what we know in the field of artificial intelligence and computer science in the last 40 years 
is that uh, um, we can uh, um, is that we can uh, really we do not have any kind of uh, um, uh, I don't know what to say um, we do not have one winning method in the science of the artificial because uh, these tools that you were mentioning use different kinds of uh, modeling paradigms. One use symbolic probabilistic engine, another one use um, deep learning and deep networks machines. But we, uh, as humans, are able to, uh, let's say, uh, have this kind of uh, uh, capability by integrating exactly uh, these two different kinds of uh, uh, paradigms and these two different kinds of uh, faculties that arise from uh, uh, this kind of uh, integration. So again, the, the integrate, I mean, uh, we should be able to integrate uh, uh, AlphaGo with, uh, with Watson and, and, and more in order to, let's say, uh, compare, in order to have a sort of uh, human comparable uh, intelligence in terms of AI, but we are not really there and I think one of the reasons is due to this hyper-specialization and this hyper-focus uh, on uh, uh, very narrow functional systems in, in the current field of AI. Yeah, and, and we have a recent example. I, I think you talk about this in the book, uh, GPT-3. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about it. Uh, it is, it is a, the latest iteration of a hyper-specialized thing uh, that is unable to learn anything new. And, and I was fascinated by this, uh, the infrastructure required to house it, you can't even move it anymore. <laughs> and so, so to talk about rigid AI or, or specialized AI, it has to stay where it is and it can only produce what it, what it has learned so far. Right, I mean, this is uh, uh, an enormous problem because uh, um... I mean, we as humans, but also other biological uh, intelligent uh, agents in this planet are able to, uh, let's say, um, ontogenetically uh, learn new tasks. So we build from the knowledge that uh, we have at a given timestamp and we build on, on this knowledge by having new experiences, by interacting with new agents and, and so on and so forth. So let's say that the knowledge, so the learning part is really uh, um, say something that uh, follows our ontogenetic uh, evolution. And this is something that you cannot really uh, do uh, in this kind of system, also because they, uh, they face the foundational problem of deep nets, which is uh, catastrophic interference. So the fact that when you learn new knowledge, actually you, you uh, overwrite some of the previous knowledge that you had in this network. So th there is also this foundational, this foundational problem. But again, this is not a message against the connectionist and the deep learning world, because I really think that we need that part because they have shown that they are better than any other kind of modeling paradigms in the, uh, in, in all the perceptual task, okay? And, and we need the perceptual task. And we need to integrate the perceptual task in the kind of general agent that I was talking about. But we, need, we really need to find a way to combine the modeling paradigms that have been developed so far in cognitive science, computational cognitive science, and artificial intelligence in a non ad hoc way. This is the point, because 
there are there is plenty in the literature of hybrid system trying to let's say uh, combine uh, this kind of uh, uh, let's say the the, the 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 approaches and the output of the uh, let's say neural networks and connectionist architecture to more uh, abstract level of representation but in most of the most of the times this kind of integration is done ad hoc and while this work for building a functional system this uh, let's say is not really uh, uh, scientific uh, is not really something that has a, a scientific uh, uh, interest yeah so so on the structural design side um, i want to get your perspective on this antonio uh, I know that people are fascinated by the human brain, neuroscientists and computer scientists included, uh, but the humans are not necessarily good decision makers, especially in the presence of high uncertainty and a lot of data. And so, so I, I'm perplexed by this, uh, this desire to replicate the human brain in domains that requires decision making in the presence of uncertainty. For instance, in the mid 90s, we demonstrated in a pharmaceutical company that machines can make a lot better, better decisions than senior managers. Um, and, and so we know that humans are not that good. And so, so I wonder from the structural design perspective where that is heading. Okay, so uh, the fact that humans are not optimal decision makers is well known and uh, this again goes back to uh, the study of Herbert Simon that uh, introduced the notion of bounded rationality. So we are bounded, uh, re uh, bounded rational agents because we have a lot of cognitive and biological also constraints that we have to face when we have to make decisions in a, an uncertain environment with incomplete information and so on and, uh, and uh, so forth. Uh, but an, another point of, uh, let's say, the other side of the coin of the bounded rationality is the notion of satisficing. So uh, even if we are, let's say, suboptimal sub in a specific tasks, in general, we are able to, we are, we are uh, satisficing decision makers in, uh, if we consider the whole spectrum of quantities that we are able to deal with with this kind of let's say very limited uh, very limited and i would say low energy consumption uh, engine that uh, that we have so um this this is one point the other point is that from an evolutionary perspective the uh, satisfying heuristics that we use uh, are in most of the cases very useful uh, to, to to make fast decision in an uncertain environment okay there is a lot of discussion about whether all the cognitive biases that are known in the human humans are are really biases or they are heuristics they are shortcuts and there are many experiments showing how uh, in fact they are actually heuristics because in most of the cases uh, these uh, actual, uh, let's say, errors are the things that allows us to reason in a, a fast way in an uncertain environment and that allows us also to make revisions in real time to the kind of decision that we have uh, taken, uh, let's say, one second before and so on and, uh, and uh, uh, so forth. So this is why it is important also in the context of AI, not just in the context of cognitive modeling, to 
to pursue this uh, structural uh, structural approach because uh, most of let's say the biases are actually most of our let's say weaknesses are also uh, in in a general setting our points of strength okay so if we want to integrate all the different kinds of uh, say, capabilities that, uh, or, or, or even a part of the capabilities that we are able to, to show and to exhibit as uh, intelligent uh, uh, human beings, then we have to really uh, find a way to, uh, to build a, let's say, satisfying overarching architecture that allows us to really integrate uh, let's say all these kind of uh, faculties. So we need to be suboptimal in a certain sense, suboptimal in specific uh, uh, fields, but uh, in general, we need to uh, be able to uh, do uh, many different kinds of, uh, uh, we really need to be able to do many, many different kinds of, uh, of tasks. This is the, 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 um, uh, the idea. And this is also the call uh, for, uh, let's say, uh, to, to join the forces uh, to, uh, in the context of the cognitive architectures enterprise, which is also, let's say, an area in which I spend some of the time in the, in the, in the book. Because this is also an old idea, but, but now it seems that we have, uh, uh, let's say, a major technology to, to really try to make the, this integration effort uh, 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 possible. The idea goes back to Alan Newell uh, to the, the, the early 90s, but now that the community of quantum architectures is re is really uh, uh, um, growing. So, so, so I have a little bit of a bias here, Antonio. So I just want to get your perspective. Um, I'm not sure humans are satisfied with decision makers in many domains. I'll just give you some examples. Uh, financial markets trading, for example, we can demonstrably show uh, machines are a lot better than a human sitting in front of a computer and making trading decisions. And, and this is because we don't have stable heuristics, we have high uncertainty, half a million years of uh, evolution. Uh, heuristic, heuristic generation, I agree with you that it's low power, uh, it's very flexible, but it also requires heuristics that are necessarily stable. Uh, and so when you go to, you know, sort of scientific experiments that generates a lot of data, like uh, the Large Hadron Collider, for instance, or financial markets, or in many cases, business decision making that requires a lot of data, humans uh, don't make satisfactory decisions. They make actually the wrong, wrong decisions. And so, so in some sense, I wonder from a design perspective, this idea that we should really take the human brain as a model is is uh, is the right idea um okay the point is this one i'm using a satisfaction satisfying in the herbert simon terms okay so even a bad decision can be satisfactory because this kind of heuristics is used in a suboptimal way in a variety in a variety of fields so uh, let's say um, this is this is an important an important point I'll give you an example. Let us consider a quite well-known fallacy, which is called the conjunction fallacy, okay? So the conjunction fallacy is a fallacy where, for example, I ask you to categorize an instance that I call Linda, 
by saying, uh, okay, look, Linda was a girl in the, uh, in the uh, 70s. Uh, she was a green uh, activist and uh, she majored, she, she had a, a PhD in, uh, I don't know, philosophy in, uh, in the 70s and so on and so forth. And based on this kind of, let's say, cues that I'm, um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm giving to you, I ask you to categorize uh, Linda in this way by saying, okay, look, would you say that uh, uh, Linda is a, a, a bank teller or that Linda is a bank teller and a feminist? If you have to answer to this question in a matter of few seconds, most of the people heuristically respond, okay, well, Linda is a, a feminist and a, a bank teller. Why? Because some of the cues prompted that kind of answer, even if it is obviously wrong from the point of view of uh, uh, um, a theory of probability. Because the probability of a, a conjunction is, uh, uh, of course, uh, minor with respect to the probability uh, that only uh, one of the, uh, con uh, of the conjunctive elements is uh, is uh, true, right? So this is classical probabilistic theory. But if I change this example in the following one, and uh, okay, let, let's imagine that I'm walking into the, 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 the moon time, and uh, suddenly I see, uh, let's say, a strange uh, um, shadow, and uh, I, I start what it is. And this item is two uh, meters uh, uh, tall, and it weighs uh, 300 kilos. It has, uh, let's say, uh, teeth which are very, uh, very uh, strong, and it, it looks uh, very aggressive. What kind of decisions should I make? So, should I infer that this is a mammal, or should I infer this is a mammal and is also dangerous? So probably, from an evolutionary point, point of view, it is better if I take the second choice, even if, from a probabilistic point of view, it is still wrong, because it is exactly the same the case of the um, um, conjunction uh, uh, fallacy. So this is, a, 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 let's say, uh, an example. It is, of course, a toy example, but it, it is plenty of this kind of example uh, of how a uh, satisfying heuristics is, uh, um, uh, let's say, is something which is uh, built in in our mind because from an evolutionary point of view, uh, having this kind of suboptimal decision strategy is really the best way to, I don't know, to, to survive to a, an environment in which we do not have complete information and uh, uh, where we have to face with the, uh, with the uh, so this is an example of satisfying uh, heuristics. It is obviously wrong from uh, uh, the point of view of a theory of probability, but this is not really a bad decision. It is a good decision. It is better if I start running, if I see uh, this kind of huge, uh, let's say, Yeti-like uh, thing, because most probably uh, it is uh, uh, something uh, uh, that is dangerous for me, right? So this is just a, 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 to give you uh, an example about why it can be important to uh, implement this kind of satisfying strategies uh, with, within uh, an, artificial, uh, an artificial system. Yeah, 
The, the problem, though, uh, Antonio, is that all those heuristics are based on half a million years. So, so we are a bit like a fish out of water, right? Uh, last hundred years, we have all this data. So, if such a problem is presented, you say, "Well, I should run." Maybe in the modern world, I should take insurance, right? <laughs> uh, and so, so the, those heuristics that we hold uh, close to our head, so to speak, are, are tried and tested heuristics for survival. Uh, but we don't have predators anymore. We don't. We don't really have any of those things going on. But we have, let's say, big data, and we have uncertainty. Uh, how do we actually use those heuristics or? We cannot use those heuristics, but can we use the hardware that we have? We have to these new problems. Uh, that, that is that, that is sort of a biological question, not just an artificial intelligence question. I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it is right that uh, we are probably at least in, uh, let's say, the most advanced countries. We still do, we, we do not have uh, any more these kind of uh, problems, but still we have this kind of, let's say. A primitive uh, heuristic that uh, move our our uh, our decision making uh, strategies. The point is that these heuristics uh, are based on, uh, let's say, some uh, elements which are still there. So the fear we still have fear in this world. The love we still have love, motivation, goals. So we are, uh, let's say. Uh, the, our decision-making strategies are really driven by a plethora of uh, uh, a, a variety of different things which are still there, even if, let's say, the triggers of these elements are not probably exactly the same of, uh, let's say, some uh, uh, thousands of years um, uh, ago. But still, also in the financial market, you can have fear of losing, uh, let's say, your uh, your investment. So, we, we, which kind of decision should uh, should you make? Um, or uh, I mean, and, and this goes on for all the kind of let's say uh, the, the technologies that uh, we uh, nowadays use uh, use in our uh, everyday uh, everyday life. So, the driving elements of our decision making strategies are still there. And it is again uh, um, uh, still possible that a machine in a let's say particular field makes a better decision than us. For example, they can make a better decision in the game of Go or in the game of Sudoku, okay, with respect to a human player. But I, I cannot play only Go or Sudoku. I can do a lot of different uh, different things, okay, by using let's say the the that minimal set of heuristics that allows me to let's say, generalize and to, as we were mentioning, to use this kind of anatomical structure at a very, let's say, low rate of consumption energy in order to, uh, let's say, to phase, uh, to phase the environment. So it is true that the context is changed, but the elements that drive our uh, decisions are, are, are still there. And uh, again, like in the, in the case of the conjunction fallacy, in most of the cases, uh, um, the, the use of, uh, uh, let's say, shortcuts, heuristics, can be a way to face the big data problem. Because, uh, I mean, we are not able to, to um, 
to really analyze big data. Of course, machines are better than humans and more than any other animal, uh, animal in uh, analyzing uh, uh, big data. But uh, the way in which we face that problem is by using these shortcuts. So, because uh, while you are waiting that a computer is able to analyze all the big, big, big data, we have already done uh, 10 moves, something like that, okay? Why? Because we are able to use heuristics. So, and um, this is a, a, an important strategy from an evolutionary point of view. You cannot wait, let's say, the, 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 for uh, the entire, uh, let's say, big data data set being analyzed if you want to, uh, let's say, have uh, an agent that, uh, for example, acts in the real world, that cooperates in a human, uh, with, with humans in the real world, that, for example, that uh, cooperates with the, uh, the, um, in, in the hospitals with, uh, in order to fight, uh, let's say, the, these COVID pandemics and so on and so forth. So you cannot wait to analyze uh, a huge amount of big data. I mean, the, our powerful, uh, let's say, strategy is to use, uh, let's say, um, few data, but having uh, big models, okay? So if we have big models with few data, we are also able to, let's say, act and to, uh, uh, let's say, to react, I would say, to the kind of stimulus that we receive to the environment, in general, in a satisfying, in a satisfying way. So, so if I understand you correctly, Antonio, what you're saying is that the structural design paradigm is still uh, very useful uh, and it is good to use the human brain as a model uh, because it, it is flexible, it is generalizable, it's general purpose, granted its decision-making capabilities in specific cases are not optimum. Uh, but in general, it's able to do a lot of things reasonably okay, uh, and hence that model is still still a good one. Um, so, so I want to go to another chapter in the book. Um, so, you know, a lot of people are, I mean, they've been talking about the singularity forever. Um, uh, I know that it's coming. <laughs> I'm just convinced it's coming uh, anytime soon. Uh, but, but suppose it's coming, uh, and, and people have been talking about this in terms of how do we differentiate a human from a machine? There were very early attempts, right? There was a Turing, famous Turing test, and uh, that that is now, there are many, many um, iterations of it now, right? Do you want to talk a bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, the Turing test was, uh, let's say, this idea of Alan Turing, uh, um, where actually the behavior of a machine, the idea is that uh, a machine is intelligent if, if the behavior, the output of a machine, is not really recognizable by a human judge as different with respect to the kind of output that uh, uh, um, also a human can provide uh, within a, a kind of uh, um, conversation, okay? A conversation in which, of course, the human judge do not know uh, which is the kind of, I mean, who is providing the output that uh, is uh, um, uh, reading. Uh, the problem of the Turing test, and this is something that uh, is, uh, let's say, explained in the chapter five of the, of the book, is that this test is really language-based. 
And uh, another problem, which is well known, is that it is, uh, uh, let's say, just based on the analysis of the output. But as I try to make it clear in the book, the same output can be generated by completely different mechanisms, by completely different processes. So uh, what I uh, propose uh, in the book is uh, another kind of, uh, I would not say uh, test, but it is a, a framework, an evaluation framework, which is non-subjective because, of course, in the Turing test, there are different judges that uh, different human judges that can have different uh, opinions about whether the output that they are reading is the one of a man or the one of a, a machine or a human or a machine. Then uh, another problem is that um, uh, this, kind of, uh, this kind of minimal cognitive grid uh, allows for a graded evaluation. So in the Turing test, you have something like, okay, this is human, and this is a, a machine. You have this kind of Boolean things. You do not. Have, you cannot really have, let's say, uncertainty. Uncertainty in the kind of as a human judge in the way in which you judge the output of a given system. And uh, in general, uh, let's say the the kind of output that uh, the kind of framework that I propose allows for both a quantitative and a quantitative and a qualitative analysis of the cognitive adequacy of the, the performances of the output of the artificial systems. Uh, why? Because uh, in, by, by providing this minimal cognitive grid, I consider three main, uh, let's say, elements which are uh, important. The first one is the functional structural ratio, because what they say is that uh, the two paradigms that uh, I have mentioned in the first chapters of the book, so functionalism and instructionalism, can be integrated. And they are actually integrated in a complex system. In a complex system, you cannot have an entirely structural system, because uh, an entirely structural artificial system. Because in this way, I mean, you go in what I call the Wiener paradox. So you should be able to replicate an entire human beings, okay, in computational terms, but this is, of course, not possible. So you need to find a balance between the com some components which are function functionally integrated within a, a more comple a com a complex picture and some other components which are, uh, let's say, more structurally connected with uh, the way in which our brain or our, let's say, mind work. So this is, this is the first element. The second element is the generality. So how this system is general uh, and how this system uh, um, um, can, uh, let's say, uh, how can we evaluate the intelligence of, of a system with respect to this generality issue that I was also talking about? And another point is the performance match, which includes not only, let's say, uh, the same successful output, but also the errors. Okay, so an analysis of the errors that are produced by, uh, by uh, the system while uh, it, it, the system is actually being uh, being used now this framework is not language based can be used for uh, language technologies for embodied agents and it provides a way to uh, actually ground on a 2d space okay uh, uh, the, the different kinds of, of uh, artificial system cognitively inspired or not or biologically inspired or not that uh, are developed in the context of both the cognitive modeling and uh, um, uh, artificial intelligence this, of course, cannot be done with the Turing test because 
as I mentioned, it, it has these problems. It is only based on the behavior, on the manifest behavior that can be obtained in different ways. It is only based on the language, but, but we use a variety of different kinds of uh, other faculties in order to judge the intelligence of, for example, another uh, human, human beings. And then it is, uh, uh, let's say, subjective, because uh, different humans judge can, uh, let's say, have a different opinions about uh, the, the, the behavior of, uh, about the output that they judge uh, um, of uh, uh, the system that is going to be tested. And uh, this is, of course, a problem of the Turing test, and I also reviewed the problems of other tests of intelligence, like the Winograd uh, schema challenge or the uh, newer theory of uh, uh, cognition. And I uh, try to show how the minimal quantitative grid is a more comprehensive framework in order to, uh, let's say, uh, make progress in this kind of, uh, let's say, evaluation effort. Uh, if you, and if you want to compare, let's say, the output of a, of a machine with the kind of, let's say, output that we are also able to provide as, uh, uh, as humans. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A, a more sophisticated test or a more sophisticated framework, like the one that you're describing, um, also can push the field forward, right? If you have a more sophisticated way to test something, uh, then you can you you can try to try to go further. So um, I think we are reaching a point. These types of frameworks are now needed to push the field forward. Uh, so as I want to uh, finish up with your thoughts on uh, where where the field is heading. So if you if you sort of look forward five ten years, um, let me ask you the <laughs> the question of singularity. Do you think? Um, we are, let me ask you in two different ways. Do you think we will ever reach singularity, meaning we are going to be completely fooled by a machine? Uh, and if we do, when do you think that is likely to come? Okay, uh, so I will answer to the second question uh, before. I don't think it is coming, uh, this problem, anytime soon, because uh, um, as I try to make it clear in the book, the field of artificial intelligence, by uh, the huge progresses that has done, is really, let's say, uh, galaxies away from the kind of abilities that we have, not just as humans, but in general, from the kind of abilities that animals or also small rodents are uh, have, okay, in order to survive, let's say, within our real, real environment. Uh, then about the singularity, I think this is more, more something uh, related to science fiction than to uh, science. So I'm not really a, a science fiction expert. I think that <laughs> as, a, as a scientist, uh, we should really try to, uh, a goal that we have to, uh, to put in our uh, agenda is to really try to integrate, to have integrated systems. So integrated system in a non-adopt way that can shed light on uh, also uh, on some uh, some of the things that we think we know about the brain and about about the mind, but that we don't actually uh, uh, know. So um, I think this is really a, a key um, uh, research point in, in the agenda, at least for for the, the perspective of, uh, perspective of uh, the cognitive inspired and biological inspired 
uh, um, AI. Uh, and I think that this is also going to be uh, one of the, uh, of the goal of the artificial intelligence in general, because we are now reaching a point that this is coming to become clear now, where, uh, okay, we need to find a way to go beyond deep learning. Deep learning is good, reinforcement learning is good, but we need to find, to find really something more in order to make the next jump. And my proposal, which is not really a new proposal, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm just trying to uh, make the point of returning to some of the early elements that were somehow neglected some in the last decades, but then can be really useful for the development of the next generation in um, the next generation AI, uh, AI systems. Yeah, so, so for my own understanding, Antonio, what you're proposing is sort of an integrated approach. Um, so we had some ideas early on, um, we abandoned them, we went to this uh, deep learning route. Uh, and I heard somebody say the other day that there's nothing deep learning cannot solve uh, from a famous company in Silicon Valley. Um, and I, you know, so, so what you're suggesting is that that may not be, uh, most human predictions have been wrong, especially about the future. So that, <laughs> that, that may not work. Uh, what you're saying is that there could be attributes that be abandoned from previous iterations that if you bring back to the current regime, we might have even more powerful ways to solve the AI problem. Yeah, uh, also because it is not true that with deep learning you can do everything. I mean, uh, this is, this belongs to the category of marketing, not to the category of, uh, let's say, uh, the scientific uh, uh, scientific vocabulary. Because you cannot do every, everything with deep learning. You cannot do everything with reinforcement learning. I try to make it clear by showing which are the foundations. Uh, to make it clear at this point in the book by trying to show which are the foundations of this uh, different approaches that uh, now are uh, used every day, they say, in in the current AI uh, AI field. So you can do something with deep learning, something with reinforcement learning, something with probabilistic uh, reasoning, something with uh, logic, something. With, but we really need to find a way to unify all these things because uh, an interesting thing is that uh, all these different, let's say, uh, pieces of modeling paradigms that have been developed uh, have been shown to be able to model different uh, aspects of cognition, but uh, no one of them is able to model all the aspects of cognition. So uh, let's say in integration is really uh, the, uh, the the key point that we should uh, target. I'm not, uh, let's say, uh, I do not like to respond to this kind of marketing uh, claims with deep learning you could do everything because it, this is this is just uh, uh, false uh, from a, a scientific uh, uh, point of view otherwise I mean everything will be solved and uh, we uh, will not be here uh, talking about the next generation of AI systems right excellent yeah I agree I completely agree uh, excellent Antonio this has been great thanks so much for spending time with me I just want to mention the, the name of the book, uh, Cognitive Design for Artificial Mind. Uh, it gives a good background of history, a good background of the status quo and, and possible new directions. So thanks again. Thank you very much, Gil, for this uh, invitation. It was really my pleasure.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com.